You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. 494. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful hearts. Why my soul are you so dejected Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my saviour and my God. I am deeply depressed, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Misa. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taught me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my saviour and my God. Thanks, Judy. When you're in any sort of ministry, um, if you're a married person, you can only do that with the support of your partner. And um, Judy and I have been... um, not only married, but for most of that time, we've been in some sort of ministry uh, for almost 50 years. So it's, uh, it's nice for her to share with me this morning. It seems a very familiar thing to do. I remember, again, having these fleeting background things this morning, and this really was in the olden days, because our 42-year-old daughter was about three years old. And we were preparing to go to Taiwan on our first missionary term. And one of the things that missionaries have to do, and which most of us hate doing, is actually raising your own support. And so we were doing that process. And uh, we were invited to a little church uh, way up in the Dandenongs. I think it was in Emerald or Sassafras or someplace like that. And when we got there, it was, it was something off a picture postcard. It was a, a beautiful little timber frame building with the little steeple on top and nice 
garden around the place. And um, when we got there, the guy that um, met us and invited us in said, we're in a bit of trouble this morning. It's a good start to any day, isn't it? Uh, what's happened? Well, the organist is sick. Okay, we, we can fix that, Judy and I, we can, we can fix that. So I got up and gave the welcome and then I sat down at the organ while Judy got up and announced the first hymn with the baby on her hip. And then she sat down and I got up and read the Bible or something. And then I sat down and she got up and I got the baby on my hip while she did the children's address. And we proceeded through the whole service like that. And uh, we haven't forgotten that one. And um, one of the things I haven't forgotten is that they didn't even give us any money for petrol. A bit rude, really. <laughs> anyway, I mean, we really performed that day. Anyway, we've had a, a lot of good fun along our 50 years journey. One of the um, enjoyments, I think, in getting an opportunity like I've got this morning um, to preach, I don't think of myself as a preacher, I think of myself as someone who shares his experience, because that's mostly what I do. But when you are given this opportunity, whether it be at a, a men's camp or a church service such as this, a, a, a fellowship meeting, a Bible, it's an opportunity for you to delve into scriptures uh, much deeper than you probably normally would do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that's been my experience for the last 10 days or so since Jono asked me to take a, um, the message this morning. And, and so that's a real joy. And, and I wish I could get myself into the habit of doing that more regularly because it's a really good thing to do. Because it not only makes you realise how fresh scripture is. I don't know, I have no idea, but I'm sure I've read Psalm 42 X amount of times like most of you have. But this week it's been fresh. God's given me some freshness about it. And that's the wonderful thing about scripture. And also it's, it's opened my eyes afresh and brought back some memories of things past. It brought up a couple of hurts actually that I had to ask God to take back again from way back. And uh, it's really a great opportunity. If anybody ever asks you to share don't knock them back because you think you're not a speaker or you're not a talker or something because God can use you and, and he can use what you've got to say to touch somebody else. And so I'm approaching this this morning. I'm hoping it's more. But if one of you goes home and, and this psalm has become fresh and alive to you this morning, then I'll feel like we've had a successful time together. So uh, bear with me. I'm as human as you are. I'm trusting God to bring out just exactly what he wants brought out for our collective benefit this morning. And so we go on, uh, as Suzanne said, with, with this Psalms of Summer series. I don't know how long we've been doing that, but it seems like it's a long time. It's something <clears throat> excuse me, we as a congregation look forward to over the summer. We know as we approach the end of the year, that's what's going to be happening at the summer. And so... Uh, that's where we are, Psalm 42. I'd forgotten from my Bible study in my Bible college days um, that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, the general consensus across 
all theologians and scholars of scripture is that Psalms 42 and 43 are actually one psalm. And if you like to read them both later, you'll, you'll realise that they really do fit together. The language is the same. Some of the phrases are even the same. Some of the, the, the sentences are the same. And uh, it's believed that over the three or 4,000 years since this psalm was written, that it's gone through various translations and uh, that somewhere it was divided. We don't know by whom or how, and we, but anyway, that's how we approach these psalms. I'm not gonna do much about Psalm 43 this morning except refer to it a couple of times. I, I wanna to stick to Psalm 42. Our congregation here seems to change quite a bit. We sort of be stable for three or four weeks and then you see some new faces and we seem to be coming and going. And uh, most weeks we seem to have a visitor or two. So I thought just a little background on the Psalms might be helpful for us this morning. 150 Psalms. Um, theologians tell us written over about a thousand years, mostly between the years uh, 10, uh, sorry, 1000 at 930 BC, during the reign of King David and Solomon, his son. They think the oldest psalm was Psalm 90, and it was written about 1500 BC, not long after the exodus uh, that the Israelites flew from Egypt. And this psalm was written during the time they were wandering in the desert. Most of you aren't old enough to know the scholar Henrietta Mears. Uh, she's a lady I used to read a lot when I was younger and was often referred to at the Bible college I went to. And she calls the book of Psalms solid gold. Solid gold. She said it's the place to go to when you want to slip into something and find a treasure. That's a nice way of thinking about it, isn't it? And, and she's pretty accurate. And it, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm sure you would say the same, that the Psalms um, definitely seem to be among the favourite of the books, certainly of the Old Testament, perhaps of the Bible. The Hebrew text uh, translates Psalms as book of praises. The English word Psalm actually comes from the Greek. The Psalms is considered the national hymn book of Israel. 150 Psalms or poems set to music for worship, for magnifying God, for praising the Lord, for exalting the attributes of God, for sharing and lifting up his names, his word and his goodness. Jews and Christians alike today still refer to the Psalms. Muslims refer to the Psalms, that might surprise you. And if you've had any opportunity at all, you'll find that in the Quran, and which is basically the Muslim's Bible, the book of Psalms is mentioned a number of times. I always grew up, and I don't know why, thinking that 150 Psalms were written by David. And because uh, you always hear of the Psalms of David, but that's actually not quite true, although he did write a lot of them. His son Solomon wrote some of them. Moses wrote a few of the Psalms before David probably was even born. There were musicians at the court of the king 
Asaph was one of them, the sons of Korah, who this psalm this morning is referred to, were court musicians. But they say about a one third of the psalms is actually anonymous, that we don't really know who wrote them. My own feeling is that the psalms appeal to us so much because it's basically a book of human experiences. <laughs> so many of the psalms we read, we find we can actually relate to that. And uh, it seems to uh, fathom the heights and the depths of human experience. And so it's not very difficult to relate to it. I think the psalms show us that circumstances and situations change but human feelings and human emotions do not. Something I hadn't actually focused on very much before, but which I did this week, was that the, the book of Psalms is also very prophetic. It has a lot to say about the coming and the birth and the death of our Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said that we can look to the Psalms to find everything there written about himself. Luke 24, so Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything that was written about me. Jesus even refers to the Psalms as containing information about himself. And it's funny, but if you've got one of the older Bibles that's... Um, that's got a, a cover like that. If you sort of flop it open, pretty much in the middle, you'll find the Psalms. And it seems to me that that's not a coincidence because the Psalms really are very central in ours and in the writer's experiences. And so we want to delve into that just a little bit this morning. Psalm 42 begins with a picture of a deer wandering through the hills looking for water. Verse 1, as the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. Have a look at that picture. I, I have to say I didn't take it, neither did Jude. However, a few years ago, Judy and I had the great joy and privilege of uh, being able to drive ourselves uh, through the Scottish Highlands. And I think I remember that on two occasions, we did see lone deer wandering through the highlands and that's the best I could do was to find a picture of a Scottish deer roaming through the highlands. Uh, the one we saw was a lot more grassy and green and the heather was out and so there were the beautiful purples in the hills uh, and this majestic beast standing, it's just so difficult to put into words, the glory and the splendour of that animal. But I, I don't think that's what David was talking about this morning. Have you ever seen one of those David Attenborough things where he shoots things in the African jungle and uh, so forth and, and there's another deer there coming up, Phil, which I think gives us a better picture. This is a picture of an animal stressed, one that's been chased through the desert by some predator, an animal fighting for life and searching for food and water in a parched and a dry land. I think that's the deer that David is talking about us this morning. It's what he's relating to because he himself is under tremendous pressure from his adversaries 
and he's longing for refuge. I don't know if that poor old dear found any refuge or whether he became a meal for a lioness and her family. But the writer to the Psalm, Psalm 42 says his refuge is only to be found in God. This was a man of tremendous faith. And yet he's going through the depths of despair as we go into this psalm. I hope that encourages you. This psalm speaks to all of us. No matter where you are, what you're in, what you're going through, what your situation is, stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. In another situation, I might use a better word. Um, but God is on the throne. And if you're living his way, and he's got you in the palm of his hand, and he's with you through whatever you're going through, and he will bring his purposes to bear. And sometimes as we go through the struggles and the difficulties of life, that's the only thing we can hang on to. And so that's what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 42. I think throughout human history, right from Adam and Eve, there have been those who have struggled with personal trials, struggles of, uh, of body, of mind, of spirit. And, and often we seek some form of shelter, perhaps some sort of deity to get us through. Places of pilgrimage around the world like Mecca and Jerusalem, Tibet, or Lourdes in France come to mind. It's great places of pilgrimage where over thousands of years, millions of people have gone looking for answers to their daily struggle. People who have travelled physically or emotionally to specific places that have some sort of association with some sort of divinity. A determined quest, putting aside everything else to find their safe place, their God. And this is what the psalmist is trying to do this morning as he writes this psalm. I'm sure there's a lot of us um, who have a desire to visit somewhere or to go to a certain place. Um, this is probably, I'm not sure if this is even politically correct, but I, I'm, I'm old, John's already smiling. I, I'm old enough to be a real fan of... Um, the monarchy in England. Now I know they have their struggles. We don't have to read our newspaper to find out about that. But I like the system and I'm a history buff. So I love the history. And I've really got this urge that I want to go to London in May and be part of the coronation. Because you know that's the high point of the, the whole monarchy, you know, is the coronation service. That's not gonna happen, but it's a desire. A lot of us have a desire like that. I had a friend whose whole life was built on saving enough money to visit the, the Eiffel Tower. You might have a desire too. That might be just to pay off your mortgage. Might be just to get your kids through school. It might be for you just to get through the kids' school. But I wonder if any of us, I don't think I have, ever really have the zeal that the psalmist is talking about, this tremendous ache, this longing 
after God. As though nothing else in the whole universe matters. No matter what's going on around, good or bad, the one desire, my heart's desire, you know that thing that I have the strongest longing for, is to know God more and better. I want God to be my God. Is that your longing? I'm not sure that I can always say that it is. But that's the psalmist's longing. You know, for most of us, we can feel pretty good about attending church on a regular basis. And I guess also for most of us, there's a certain satisfaction in being part of ministries or tasks around the church that, that need doing. And, and for the, most of us, we would have to say that that comes from a real and a sincere desire on our part to serve God. But can we really relate to the psalmist? His deepest desire is not to come to church on Sunday morning, not to make the coffee in the kitchen, not to run the kids' program, but to know God as a deep, heartfelt need. God is the person of the psalmist's pilgrimage. And that psalm has been telling me this week, Doug, I wish you had that same zeal that the psalmist had. And I suspect, as you reflect, honestly, you will have the same thoughts. He mentions in the psalm in verses 2, 3 and 4 the essentials for physical life, food, water. But when he comes to worship, being in the very presence of God, without the worship, without God, life was totally meaningless. Day and night, he says in verses 3 and 8, he felt the pain caused by separation from God's sanctuary and being in the presence of God. And the pain of the people around about him who wouldn't leave him alone. Those who were ridiculing him. His apparent depression was not only due to the absence of God, but to the presence of his enemies. Those who were round about him, taunting him, asking, where is your God? Anybody ever said that to you? Where is your God? I guess that's partly due because if people can't see or feel, if something isn't tangible, they can't relate to it. And the living God is invisible. He is intangible. And those people were saying to him, your God is useless. Look at all the trouble you're in and you can't get out of it. Where is your God now? Now, I don't think most of us, I hope, most of us don't live under that sort of daily ridicule that comes from being a Christian. I know some of you do have experiences of working in very difficult situations. I remember many years ago, and it was a thought that came to me this week, uh, I was much younger, but I was very severely judged by some family members because I chose to go to a church service on a particular weekend rather than a family picnic. And um, 
doesn't matter that I wasn't consulted about the setting the date of the picnic in the first place, but, but they gave me a pretty hard time. And, and, and that hurt at the time. I, I can laugh it off now. And uh, all these years later, I could have given them a very good answer. I was a pretty timid Christian in those days. I thought I was doing the right thing, what God wanted me to do to go to this service. I didn't know how to answer them like I would do these days. One of those people was a, an elderly relative who was only recently uh, passed away. And just about three months before he passed away, I saw him, it was the last time I saw him, and uh, he challenged me about why I had wasted my whole life working for the church why I'd given up in his eyes a career and a big house and three cars and 14 TVs and a pool table and that's what his kids had. Why haven't you? Why would you waste your time? Fortunately, this is 30 years after the first incident, I did have some answers. He didn't like it, but at least I had the answers. That happened to you with your family or friends who know that you were a Christian and give you a bit of a hard time about it. What about the ridicule you may have received for not wanting to take part in the after work pub crawl with some of the guys and they give you a bit of a hard time about it? Or I know of a woman, a friend, who got a hard time at the local school mothers club because she declined an offer to purchase a fundraising raffle ticket because her particular Christian stand said that she didn't buy raffle tickets. Boy, did they give it to her. You get that too? The late Reverend Dr. John Stott was a British clergyman, a writer, uh, a philosopher, a theologian, a great, great man. If you have a chance to read any of his writings, it's worth reading them. In Time magazine in 2005, John Stott was recognised as one of the most hundred influential people in the world. Since that time, in fact, I think about eight or nine years ago, John Stott passed away in his 90s. But in one of his books there, that's up there for you, depression seems to be a common condition among Christian people. I'm not referring to clinical depression, which may need expert psychotherapy, but spiritual depression. The author of Psalm 42 and 43 is, is clear about his depression. To begin with, he's thirsty for God, as thirsty as a deer for water, because he's estranged from him, enduring some kind of forced exile. He rem remembers great festivals of the past when he used to go and meet with God, and he longs to be allowed to return to the altar of God. To God, his joy and his delight. I guess the only thing you can say is he must have been a man of faith. People must have known he followed God to make him worthy of being stirred up and teased and ostracised. It might be hard, but can I just uh, encourage you if you can relate to what I'm talking about and there are those places where you get a hard time, 
there must be a reason you get a hard time. And I, if I were you, I would try and focus on that reason and not the hard time. Why do they know you're different? That's a good thing, not a bad thing. So then the psalmist in verse, verses 3 and 10 asks the question, where is your God? And it seems to me that through scripture it was a very standard question that Gentile idolaters ask the Jews about. Psalm 42.10, there we go, my adversaries taught me as if crushing my bones. While all day long they say to me, where is your God? Psalm 79. Why should the nation ask, where is your God? Before our eyes, let vengeance for the shed blood of your servants be known among the nations. Psalm 115.2. Why should the nations say, where is your God? Joel 2.17. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is your God? Micah 7. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her, at her in triumph, at that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. Reminds me of that scripture that I can't, about pouring water on a coal, you know. Matthew 27, I think is the next one. Yes. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him down. This, this was at the cross. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Throughout human history, Christians, people who follow the Lord God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, have been targets for testing because of their stand. The psalmist goes on to remember better days when he'd led some sort of processions of pilgrims to Jerusalem to celebrate the various feasts that go on there. And you know, I, I find sometimes our memories can be a, a great source of medicine for troubled hearts. You can think back, you know, those, I think of another part of my family, you know, I've talked about the negative part, but I had a, an aunt. She was the only Christian in the family. And uh, she was in many ways my idol because of her stand. And particularly I used to watch her stand among the rest of the family who used to just laugh and ridicule her because of her Christian faith. Right up to the day she died. Where is your faith now? Where is your God now? But the only reason they could ask that was because she lived such an exemplary Christian life. So what was the writer's response? And he goes on to pour out his heart in probably the same sort of things that you and I do. Why me? Ever ask that? You probably haven't. <laughs> Why me? We were, uh, just before Christmas, we were at a Christmas dinner with friends of ours, friends of over 50 years actually. 
And uh, one of the ladies over the last year through COVID has had uh, bad heart issues and had to have surgery on her heart. She's not a Christian lady, in fact. Um, I would say she's just about the opposite. Uh, and she was telling us at lunch, you know, why me? Why would I have this trouble? Anyway, we gave her some answers. I'm not sure she liked the answers, but anyway. But it, it, we do it, don't we? Why should I go through this garbage? Why has God made this difficult for me? You know, why didn't my numbers come up in Tetzlotto? Why me? But verse 5, verse 5, he admonishes himself for, for being so down and reminds himself that his hope is in God, not in his situation. Put your hope in God, he says, for I will still praise him, my Saviour and my God. Not easy to do, is it, when you're in the bottom of the pit, when you're covered in the garbage that somebody has thrown at you. However, as we spend more time in prayer, as we spend more time with God in meditation, scripture reading, and we begin to see and realise that God is answering our prayers, it gives us more hope, more faith in the future. It will broaden and grow our faith to the place where we are content to let God do things his way and his time. Have you ever finished your prayers and then thought, oh, I've just given a list of things I want him to do? And further, I told him how it should be done. And I told him when I'd like it done by. <laughs> Perhaps you aren't like me. He then refers to the Jordan River, which has its source in the Hermon Range. And the rains and the melting snow apparently turned what were little streams in the hills into raging cascades of water. In fact, he makes a reference there to Mizar, which in Hebrew literally means little, little. And so not only he felt little in the situation, but how these little streams became raging waters. He makes a good decision, though, instead of remembering the good old days, he focuses on the person of God. Remember back in Matthew 14, the story of Jesus walking across the water to his disciples were in the boat. The storms were raging, the waters up and down, you know. And um, the disciples, they scared, absolutely in panic, you know. They thought a ghost was on the water. Then they realised it was Jesus. And they thought, oh my goodness, he's, 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 oh Jesus, he's going to fall beneath the waves. He's going to, you know, but he was calm and assured them that he's going to work out his purposes, that he wasn't going to sink. And neither were they. That in the storm, they could trust him. Not the boat they were in, because it was taking water. Not the sails they might have had, because in a storm, they'd be long gone. But they could trust in him to work out the purposes that he has for our lives. The biggest part of this psalm comes towards the end and one of the unfortunate things that I think we Christians miss on studying scripture is because we don't have the opportunity or probably the will or desire to study the biblical languages. And that's a little bit of a shame because in our English translations um, we, mean, we lose so much of the meaning behind the words. 
So, for example, in verse 8, the word that's translated for us as Lord is actually the Hebrew word for Jehovah instead of the usual uh, word Elohim. Now, you might say, so what the heck is that all about? What does it mean? But it's actually the very turning point in the psalmist's experience. There's a lot to see behind that word Lord. It's not just his God or God in the same way that I'm Doug or John's John. Jehovah for the Israelites was the God of the covenant. The covenant with his people for all time. So much more than just being Lord, he was the God of the covenant, the faithful God who never stops caring for his people. He hadn't stopped caring for the psalmist. He hadn't stopped caring for the Israelites in their wandering around the desert. And he hasn't stopped caring for you and me. That's what we can take out of this psalm this morning. He's the God who showers his people with loving kindness. Gives them promises they can claim when we pray. And he hears us in our praise and in our worship. The writer didn't have to go to Jerusalem and lead the parades. He could worship God right where he was because God was right where he was. And God is right where you are if you will allow him to be. The hand of God was with him in the daytime, he says, and the song of the Lord in the long hours of the night. Everything might be changing. The situation was changing. The people were changing. But the Lord was his rock. His stable, strong and unchanging rock. So I'm going to finish with uh, the challenge or what I believe is the challenge that I got and the encouragement from Psalm 42, 5 and 11 and Psalm 43, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you so so dejected? Why are you in so much turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Saviour and my God. The psalmist comes back and reminds himself of the personal, my Saviour. Not the Israelite saviour, my saviour. Not the God of Israel, my God. The God whose promises were made in his covenant. His binding contract so many years before, but which were made for him and for Christians of all time. If you want to go back and check those covenant and, and check what promises have been made by God for you, go to Genesis 12 and you'll find the covenant given to uh, Abraham. And then if you go to Deuteronomy, you'll find um, Moses was further given the covenant. So this is where the psalmist ends up. No matter what, no matter what I'm experiencing, how I feel, God is still God. (laughs) 
he's still on the throne. And in my time, things are insignificant. In God's time, things will be perfect. Are you feeling close enough to God to rely on him through the garbage that you might be going through? If you have enough longing for God in your heart that it's going to make the difference to how you survive tomorrow, that's what the psalmist is asking us about. And he's saying, trust in my God. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my saviour and my God. I want to finish with a song. And thankfully, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, it's a recording that Phil has I've asked Phil to set up for us. And Phil, before I pray, I wonder if you would run that through. I want you to read the words. Very, it might be something you're familiar with and something you don't know at all, but, but the words are very appropriate to the psalmist of Psalm 42 this morning, and I hope appropriate to you and something you can use as a prayer tool and something to take home. Thanks, Phil.
Father, we thank you for your word, which has spoken to us again this morning. For the psalmist with whom we can relate, even though there's three or 4,000 years between us. Thank you, Lord, for the experiences of life that make us stronger, but help us to remember that no matter what we're going through, good or bad, that green pastures are before us. And Lord, help us to daily realise, reflect and acknowledge that God is my God. He's not waiting for me. He's with me now. Walking with me through whatever I'm going through. Carrying me on those occasions when I'm unable to do it myself. Thank you, Father. And help us, Lord, always to look to you and not to the circumstances we find ourselves in. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.